And today's episode is called Remodeling Properties with Robert Fergoso. Real estate investing for you. This is Pod Success. Pod Success. With Joe Arias, speaking to investors about the pitfalls and successes of remodels. These are top real estate investors. These are experts in the business. And this is Pod Success. Pod Success. Here is Joe Arias. Okay, so today we're with someone very, very special to me. This is Robert Fergoso. He's a multi-million dollar investor. He's been investing for the last 30 years, done hundreds of flips on his own, and been involved in over 10,000 transactions. He also owns a lot of commercial real estate. Uh, Robert is the father of two kids, a great husband, and just a great mentor. Without further ado, I'll bring you all the way from downtown Burbank to Robert Fragoso. How are you, Robert? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. So, Robert, we're gonna. I'm very, very excited for today. I'm gonna go to a little bit of a deep question. We'll keep it light, though. But I wanted to ask you. You've been such a successful person. What is your why as a real estate investor? What moves you? Why do you do what you do? Now, you know. I think your why probably changes as as your life matures and and goes from you know, the excitement and, you know, but I think initially it was just money and which is, I hear a lot that that should not be your why, but you know, I I got started really young. I was 17 years old. I was a senior in high school. And so the one thing that you really lack then is, is money. <laughs> and so, absolutely, you know, it was just kind of fun to get involved. And all of a sudden you start making this, what you think is just a lot of money. And back then it wasn't, it was, I was, I was essentially wholesaling because I had someone mentor me and I was finding them deals. And uh, back then they didn't call it wholesaling, but it was, it was, uh, you know, I was getting like $500 a property, which was nothing, it was grossly underpaying me. But, you know, when you're in high school, it's like, oh, this is a lot of money. This is awesome. And, uh, you know, you could do it with freedom and door knocking and doing whatever it is that I was doing. And, uh, and that was fun. And so that was the, I would say, initial why. And then I figured out that I was kind of unemployable because I, you know, I, I just, I liked, uh, the freedom of the entrepreneurship. Mm. And um, yeah, I, so that kind of became just, that kind of grew from there. And then you, you challenge yourself to do more and more and you meet the right people and it kind of grows from there. And, and, and that's, kind of, that, that's kind of what happens. I, I, now I just, you know, I, I don't know what else to do other than real estate. So, you know, I tried, <laughs> to, right. I tried to semi-retire for a little bit and I was bored off my ass and Absolutely. just couldn't figure out exactly how to do it. So it's, <laughs> I'm like, all right, let's go back to real estate. Then you try other things and it, it doesn't work and you're, you know, you think you're, oh, well, hey, I'm great because we've got, you know, you've got this and you think, okay, I can do anything. And, and that's not necessarily the, the, uh, the why. It, it, well, it's not the case. <laughs> so, that's right. That's so true. the why, I don't know, I, 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 deep wise. You know, I think that there's a lot of opportunity. Um, I, I love helping people. So mm-hmm. I do a lot of deals where, you know, I take on a mentorship role where, you know, someone brings me a deal and they want to learn how to do it or, or more importantly, they don't want to lose money and they want to just make sure that they're doing things right. And so, you know, I'll get involved with those deals and, and you know, sometimes put up money for it. And other times, um, you know, other times I'm not even putting up money. I'm just kind of walking them through and making sure that they're doing the right things and, and, uh, and going from there. Absolutely. I've actually noticed that um, by working with you um, throughout the years, you're, you know, even though you have so many things, so many balls in the air, you always, you know, you have a million, you know, million calls, you know, all the time, but you actually take the time and you actually care for people, which 
I think that makes a big difference. I think that's a great segue to, can we talk a little bit, Robert, about your beginnings? I know you mentioned you were wholesaling, um, but you know, would you mind sharing a little bit as a, as, a, as a flipper, as a rehabber, how did you get started? So, you know, I, I got started back in 89 was probably my first intro into real estate. And I just, I, dumb luck, really. I, you know, back then they had the, uh, it was the birth of the infomercial, right? So you had the Dave Del Dottos and Tommy Vu type characters that were there. And, you know, when you're slightly overweight, you know, senior in high school, you're like, oh yeah, that's how you get girls? Awesome. I'm going <laughs> to freaking do real estate because it's the best, right? And uh, I always liked cars. And so, you know, that was kind of, you know, they're always flashing whatever cars they were, I don't know, I'm going to say renting because that later came out. But, you know, it, it was, uh, it was just, it, it, that, that made an impression on me. Mm. So I happened to be sitting at, in the Cerritos Mall, just people watching with one of my best friends and some guy had a bunch of flyers who was sitting next to me and one of them said, buy houses with no money down. So I thought, well, shit, I have no money. So let's help me buy a house. And uh, and I said that as a joke and he looked at me seriously. He's like, yeah, it's easier to buy a house than a car. And uh, and I, I, you know, so I just kind of probed him a little bit. And I, what I didn't notice at the bottom of the flyer, it was, and this is back then, was $2,995 to go to a seminar. I, I basically, at the end of it, just uh, hit it off with him. And he, he said, uh, I, I told him, I said, listen, if you show me how to do this, I'll find you some houses. That was just my intro. He said, listen, show up at 6 a.m. here on Saturday. Help me set up for the seminar. And, um, and I'll, well, this is going to age me. I'll give you the books and tapes for free, right? Mm. And so uh, that's basically how I got started. It was just, he, he, uh, I did the first probably year with him until you know he let it slip that he was underpaying me grossly and then, mm -hmm. and then i'm like oh i need to know more investors so then mm -hmm. i figured out how to how to do that that's very interesting because a lot of uh, a lot of students a lot of well, actually not students a lot of people just jump into a deal you know they might make money they might lose money but what i'm hearing here is the idea of education you literally work with this guy even though you're not getting paid much but you i'm hearing that you got actually educated by him right for a few months before you actually start flipping no, oh, for sure. Because I mean, here, here's the thing, right? It, you don't know what you don't know. Mm. And, and I think that's, that's, I think the draw why a lot of people like to talk to me is because I've got so much experience and then, you know, the, the beauty about having done so many transactions is that, you know, with unlike a realtor who's doing almost one transaction over and over again, when you're an investor, it, all of the transactions are different. And, you know, the, the pitfalls in each transaction that people assume are pitfalls are often not the, the problem. And so, you know, I, 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 once you see enough issues that come up, you know which deals to avoid. And so oftentimes, you know, the best deal is sometimes the deal you don't do, you know, and, and just having that discipline to be able to walk away saying, hey, this is not, like I, I have, there's, there's another coaching program out there that charges, uh, you know, a, a tremendous amount of money. And it's interesting when I, I know when they're in town because I get a lot of calls, right? They have their phone set up and they're calling it and they're looking for investors or money or whatever it is. And they ask the same questions. But one of the things that, you know, I've talked to them and they're pitching out deals and I don't like their deals. And I walk through the guy, like the people call, I'm like, look, this isn't a deal. They're like, oh, no, no. Well, it's okay. I just want to do a deal. I want to have that experience and get that deal. And, you know, and I guess they must tell them in the seminar that, that listen, it's, it's, it's okay if you don't make money the first deal because it's, it's like college. You're, you're, you're paying for your education. And I'm, my response is always like, well, you know, wouldn't you want your first experience to be a good experience rather than 
not a good experience where you lose money and then you're not, and then you're just out of the business potentially because you lost too much. And, but they, it seems like they ingrain this into them, like just get involved, just start, mm. just start doing just it. Just do it. And, you know, and I don't mean to scare people, right? But there's plenty of scenarios where people lose a lot of money, you know, and I've seen a lot of, even when I was lending, a lot of borrowers that um, take a good deal and turn it into a bad deal. And, you know, and that's very easy to do if you're not doing everything properly and have checks and balances and a system by which to follow. Yeah, systems, methods. Me- methods for sure, right. Okay, that's that's great. So so, tell me a little bit more about when you started, like literally remodeling, like your first flips. Um, what did you do? What was effective? What was actually not effective? And how the robber from today would actually coach the robber from the past? So um, I, I will say when we first started, it was uh, a different marketplace, right? And back then, the game was really to buy property subject to, which is, of course, that you're buying a property, the existing mortgages stay on title, and you know you pay the seller whatever you pay them, and then fix it up and then resell. So the cost of financing, and part of that was that there was not the ease of hard money lending like there is now. So it was much more difficult. You had to really be all cash, or um, or a lot of the deals just didn't work. And so, you know, when and also back then there was a real foreclosure timeline, unlike now where you know it's not no longer like I'm here in California mostly it's 90 days plus the 21 day trustee sale period, and that gets extended because they consistently you know there's all of the shops out there that will extend the foreclosure. And so there's no real timeline. Back then, it was a real timeline. There was no short sales. There was just you know, 90 days and then 20. So there, was, so, so there was more of a urgency from the seller perspective to, to have to sell the property. With, um, with me, when I started getting involved in the repairs, you know, the repairs back then were very light. And I remember, um, I'm going to say the first one that we actually bought fix and flip versus wholesaling or doing this kind of subject to where I actually bought it cash and then fixed it. Um, it was terrible. <laughs> I mean, I look back, honestly, I've, 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 I mean, the person already sold it and they resold the house, but I almost wanted to go back and just re remodel it for them because it was such a <laughs> shitty job, but it was, you know, but you learn and, and, and back then, I mean, we, it was like, God, I'm almost embarrassed to say, but it was, it was like the home Depot peel and stick linoleum 12 by 12, stuff that we're like, yeah, that looks great. And then like, you know, we didn't even know to like, oh yeah, we're supposed to texture the walls so they don't look so crappy and then paint them. And and of course now you don't texture, you know, you smooth coat it. Right? But, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's not having an understanding from just the design aspect of it and what people were willing to pay. I remember we bought this really good deal in West Hollywood and, um, we met an agent that I later did more business with, but um, he was he, he had the listing next door. And he's like, oh, great. You guys are remodeling. We bought the worst house in the best neighborhood. Mm. And, and this is way back then. Um, I think we paid 80000 I mean, the house today is probably worth a million four is my guess. But mm-hmm. this is, you know, and this goes back to a regret if you want to talk about that later on. But <laughs> um, the... Uh, we were thinking, you know, I had this mentality of like, just try to spend as little as you can to fix it up and resell it. And the agent had told me, he said, he said, look, you've got to make it look really crisp and you'll be able to get, I think it was like 350,000 for wow. it or something, right? And um, <clears throat> of course we didn't. We're like, he doesn't know. So we put, you know, we 
my main source for buying everything was Home Depot. And back then, Home Depot didn't have the design stuff that they have now. Mm-hmm. And um, they, you know, so we were installing Home Depot, right? And they wanted like Walker Zanger and and Saks and, and that, that type of finish. And so those are two tile designers that are out here locally if, if you don't have them where you're at. But um, so we finished and, you know, super proud of this thing. We're thinking like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Agent's going to love it. He walks through and he's like, yeah, you'll get like 260 for it or something like that. And I'm like, well, why so little? I'm like, you just sold the house next door for three, like 40 something. He's like, well, because they're going to come in and remodel it. <laughs> I tell them, you know, and I'm like, what do you mean? We just, we've got, you, you know, just got to remodel. Yeah, we just remodeled these. Like, yeah, you put, the, I mean, we put like South Central wood cabinets that we mm. paint. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, and, and it, I mean, it looked, it looked good, but I looked at it like, Okay, they just need shelter. And this was an area where they wanted style and flash. And so just that was probably something I would go back and, and say, um, you don't know more than the realtor who'd been in the business and is selling the houses on that area and mm. just sold the house next door. You know, I should have listened to him. And had we invested in not even a lot more, but just invested more, we would have got back. We probably left, you know, I'm going to say forty or 50000 on the table. Wow. Just because other people were looking back at this and saying, no, no, it needs all this stuff now. So if I can distill some wisdom here, what I'm hearing is that if you would have listened to that agent, because they have much more experience, you would have, you would have gotten much more money from the deal. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, one thing that we learned in, like now with the valuation process, unless it's just something that's very crystal clear and we understand, um, the rule of thumb is you get a consensus of three from three different agents that are market share agents in the area. So mm. what that means is that you're trying to find um, the agents that have either sold, that are working with buyers or getting listings, and you're looking for the person that has multiple transactions within a you know r- decent radius of your subject property. And you're calling them up and you're really asking them, the, the question to ask is, is, what is, um, what is, what can you sell this house for within a 30-day time frame? And so, and, and I, I phrase it that way because in a hot market, right, you might get multiple offers like within the first few days and you want to know if you can push that value, right? So maybe we don't get those offers within the first week. Maybe it's going to take a couple of weeks, but what's that 30 day time frame? The other thing is that if it's a slow market and when it's a slow market, it, you know, you might price it such as it doesn't sell that quickly, right? Because maybe the market is two months. Well, then I need to be aggressive and get ahead of the market so that I can get out in 30 days. So this is true when the market's falling and, you know, those are other questions to ask, but they're really going to be at the pulse at what happens. You know, there, there's a couple of, seven, like if you if you just Google, um, there's a few reports that come out quarterly. Um, there's one, I think Bank of America does one. It's it's basically they, they survey something like 1,200 agents. And I think it's, I forget if it's them or HSBC, but it's got one question on their survey. It's basically, how was your open house? You know, a lot of the real estate agents have probably gotten this call before. Is how was your open house? Was it, this is the question, is it as expected, better than expected, or worse than expected? And that one question, all that does is forecast for the banks, what's the future hold, right? If your open houses are worse than expensive, or than expected, the market's slowing down. The buyer mentality is slowing down. And then that's going to trickle down into the other numbers that you'll see later on. Um, so, you know, 
because of the like surveys like that that we learned about and we heard about, we, we came up with, you know, okay, talking to three agents. And, and what happens when you're talking to three agents is, is this. When I say you want a consensus of three is that you've now, let's say one of the agents says, hey, the house is going to be worth 500000 Next agent says, yeah, it's about 500, 520, so somewhere in that range. Next guy comes back, he's like, yeah, it's 450. He's like, okay, so you don't have a consensus of three. Like you can say you could have a consensus of a two, right? 500, 520, right, right in that range, 500, but you have an outlier. Like, why is this guy an outlier? So I would ask that guy more questions. It's like, okay, well, why, why do you see 450? I mean, it's, it, I'm looking at comps, spoken with other people, they're saying 500. It's like, no, it's not, it's, it, and here's why you're on a slightly busier street, you know, the people don't like this or, you know, yeah, those comps are in this technical, like in Pasadena, there's certain areas that are technically a historic part and you might be directly across the street and the house looks exactly the same, but people will pay for that where they won't pay it for yours. That's right. And so, you know, the, so the let's next talk, thing- Let's talk about that, Sergeant <clears throat> interrupt. I think that's very valuable for our students. What are those things that really will decrease the value of the property, like Main Street? Right. Uh, what other things do we do we have that that people might not know when you're buying a property? So, HOA is another one. Yeah, you know, so you you're looking at it from a buyer's perspective, right? And so, always put yourself into the buyer's shoe and look at a house as if you were going to live there, right? If you're going to live there and you've got kids, if you're on a busier street, that's worth less, right? So you have to incentivize the buyer pool to want to buy your house over the house that is not on a busy street. So busy street, near commercial, backs commercial, next to freeway. Alleyways. Um, I mean, something as stupid as like a barking dog next door when you're going to see it. So just think, you know, you don't know that neighbor doesn't have their pet inside, right? It's an outdoor pet that's barking all day long or all night long. You're trying to get a good, I mean, that these little things make a difference. I it, This is so <clears throat> true. I actually had a property that it was next to a, 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 a you know, tense, uh, it was a building, a 10 unit building. And we have a complaints from potential buyers because they didn't want to have a building right next to their home. Right. So yeah, all these things will make yeah. a tremendous impact for the, for the family, for the wife, right? The wife usually is the, the, you know, uh, let's talk about that. Who is our client when, you know, for a, for a residential, for a home, um, is it the wife, is it the husband, uh, what part of the house should we work more than others? What do you think? So, so I'll say this, that, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily worry about, I, I would look more at the demographics of the area. Mm. So this is something else that we do, right? You, you, when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do to the house, you have to know the demographics of your buyer, right? What age are they? Is it an older move up neighborhood? Is it a young kind of hip, trendy person? Because you're catering to that person. Um, and so looking at the demographics, you know, you're going to look at, you know, just pull the demographics from a title company. That'll tell you who lives there. You can also ask who the current buyers are and you'll have some figures that you can go by. The next thing, it goes back to the talking to the three agents. These are great questions to ask the agents who are dealing with the buyers. They're going to tell you. And here's an example of something that happened once. Market was really heated. We're doing some properties and the agent says, hey, man, it, it's really great. Just take up the carpet, refinish the hardwood flooring, paint it, you don't even need to remodel the kitchen right now. Just it's going to, you're going to max out the appraisal because there's not much inventory. So that agent saved us money on the repairs because we, we were going to go through and just remodel everything. It's like, you, you don't need to do that right now. And so, you know, they're at the pulse of the marketplace. And so sometimes, you know, you can over improve a property. You know, there's properties that I've fixed up that, you know, that we did a very light remodel on. 
And, you know, I'm not initially proud of that as a rehab, but it was the right business decision because it made the most money. You know, so you're looking for the yield as to how can you maximize the amount of profit in the quickest amount of time when you're flipping. And so sometimes the right answer isn't to remodel the entire thing. The right answer is to get in and get out because like maybe like in this particular house that we just did not too far from here, um, the house had a very large lot, but the house was square footage wise was smaller. So I was going to cap out at the appraisal no matter what. I knew that a buyer who wanted a very large lot was going to buy this house and then do whatever they want to it. But I was going to max the appraisal out. So any extra dollars I put into it was either for ego or stupidity. Mm. And so, you know, there was no reason to do it. And that's exactly what happened. The guy came in, he bought it, and we remodeled it enough to like look remodeled, but it didn't have brand new floors. It didn't have a brand new kitchen. We changed the countertops. We made it just nice enough. Um, but, you know, we didn't spend as much money as we would have. And, you know, the guy said exactly the same thing. He goes, I've been looking for a house. There's nothing under a million with this size lot because all of the houses that are on that size lot were over 3,000 square feet. We were under two. And so I'm like, okay, well, he's, I said, so what are you going to do? He's like, oh, I'm going to remodel the whole, I'm going to, he's basically ripping out almost everything that we did. And, um, and, you know, so it would have just been a waste of money because he needed a bigger place and he also wanted a guest house, but he had to stay under a price point. So, you know, so you, you get those buyers, like that was the right buyer that, you know, we identified up front by talking to the real estate agents and they, they're the ones who said like, look, you're going to max out here. And I agreed with them. They're, we're going to max out. We sold the house for higher than what we anticipated, and um, but it was just finding the right thing. So it, it's 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 it's. I know a lot of systems say, "Hey, you, you've got to have a cookie cutter system," and we've done a lot of flips within a year where you have to have those cookie cutter systems. But you do miss out on some opportunities when you're doing that. So unless you have an absolute like flow of properties and a and a system to where you're just continually getting, you know, ten deals a month or something like that. You know, I think you have to maximize each each opportunity and and really look for those opportunities. Wow! So what I'm what I'm hearing is is uh, uh, reverse engineering, right? right? So if you if you're thinking and this to all our students, if you're thinking about buying a property, look at the demographics, talk to the agents, talk to three agents minimum, and then ask them questions. And if one of them is a little bit off, ask them more questions. Right. Get to the bottom. So you said the minimum is the key part. So uh, go, going back to the, the um, consensus of three. So and I'm, this is an actual scenario, right? So the guy was at 450. He was lower. And the next thing we did is we called the, call the fourth agent. We asked him. So the fourth agent agreed with the 450 because there was some obsolescence, which is basically there was some slightly busier street, other things that the other agents weren't accounting for. Called the fifth agent who also agreed with the third agent. So now this is a deal. Just think about this, right? You're, you're buying a property to make profit and your profit's generally going to be somewhere between 8 and 15%, right? And so that $50,000 difference would have represented all of the profit that we would have had a bad buy had we just listened to those first two. So then we went back and talked to the first two, and we're like, hey, listen. So we've spoken with some other people, and uh, here's some things that they're saying, and here's the comps that they gave us as. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, maybe a little bit less. So here's what we found out, right? Those agents, because they were either listing agents or whatever it was, or you know, they're basically giving us the number that they think we wanted to hear mm. and not necessarily had our best interest at heart. So, because they're also in the listing business, right? So, so while there's a lot of great agents that are out there, there's a lot of agents who are also salespeople and they understand that, okay, if I want to be considered for this, I also have to be the highest. And if it doesn't sell for that, 
I can just do a price reduction. It doesn't cost them anything. They're not, they, they don't have the skin in the game. So, you know, you build relationships with the agents that are, that are trying to protect you as well, right? Not the agents who just are incentivized or making money from you, right? There's got to be a, a, a ebb and flow there. How do you know that as a first time investor? You know, I've done a few deals. How do you know what is a good agent and what is not? Or what are the questions you can ask them? Wow, that's a great question. Um, hmm. I, I think that uh, it's not possible to do with just one agent if you're talking to them because you don't have a frame of reference. I think that you have to talk to multiple agents and you're going to get the feel. And, you know, and, you know, don't be afraid to question everything. Right. I think that's going to be a key. And, and so we have a saying in our office is this, is, is that everyone is our enemy. Right. And, you know, from the contractor to the agent to everybody else is trying to make money off of us, although we're taking all of the risk. And so it, it, we don't work from a standpoint of like, that's how we're going to work, treat everyone. That, that's not it at all. But we do have a, okay, we need to verify and check. I, I'll give you an example of a property that we had one of a, a contractor I've already worked with on, on maybe a handful of properties. Said, hey, go take a look at this property. Went and saw this property. It's great. We're about, we're like, we were, get, we were about a day away from closing. I, no one had seen it. We hadn't, we hadn't seen it yet. So I said, okay, well, I need to get out there and see it myself. Hmm. Went out there, saw it. And I'm like, all right. I walked it and I'm like, all right, this house isn't, there's two illegal additions on here already. Where's the permit history? Pulled the permit history. And I'm like, how did you guys miss that? Like, this was not legal square footage. And then I, you know, got on the contractor. I'm like, look, you can't just create another job. This is a deal we would have lost $30,000 on instead of making $40,000 on. And so that's a $70,000 swing because you miss some things. So here's, you know, and there, there's things that we look for, right? There's, there's, you know, it, there's stuff that you look for in the electrical meter or in the gas meter or in the, like the framing that you can see that comes out that, that just kind of maybe is indicative of something that's not to code. This particular one was very easy to spot because when you walk through the house, it was um, on title as a three bedroom, one bath house. And, but you had to walk through one bedroom to get to the next bedroom, to get to the next bedroom, to get to the lot that actually had four to get to the fourth room. And so there's no hallway there. So now you're talking about, to, the amount to correct this is significant, not to mention that there's probably no foundation in, in the rear portion of the house in a price point that's a really low price point would have been a disaster. So wow. we ended up um, going back to, this just happened, so I don't know, I don't have an outcome for you, but um, you know, we're going back for a price reduction and have now pointed this out. You know, the argument is from the agents, it's like, well, it shows that on title. So let me tell you, title, what title shows is tax records. And so back when they used to do the census and they used to measure taxes, the tax assessor doesn't really care if it's legal or not. They just care what the improvement is. And so they want to tax you on that. The city officials, right, they're the ones who basically have the end all, where all as to what is legal and what's not legal. And so if you pull a permit or even like in this case here, this is where they missed it. They went to the city website and they pulled the document and the document showed the square footage. So they assumed that to be legal. But the document that they pulled was a county assessor document that was at the city website. And so that's just, it was just how they measured the house. So that didn't make it legal, but there was no permits for the illegal stuff. So when I said, well, I already knew the answer, but I, I told them, I'm like, look, call the city and just ask them what's legal. Sure enough, it was the smaller square footage. 
And so, you know, you have to understand, and this is part of having a good contractor on your team or someone or a mentor that has the experience to be able to say, that's not a permit, that's a county like measurement tool. Like a tax assessor's. Right. right. Got it. Right. And so, so these are all the pitfalls that as a beginner, you know, they're traps, right? Wow. They're little things that you might not know of. And it's, and it's, you know, and especially if you're getting properties from wholesalers, that a wholesaler would just use this and say, hey, here, no, look, it shows this. And if you don't know, you don't know. And so the problem is that, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. I, you know, it, it's so important that, that, you know, I keep on going to the thought about education, you know, surrounding yourself with the right people, experienced people. Um, I, I like sports. I, I play tennis myself. And sometimes remodeling is like playing tennis where every time you miss the ball or the ball goes to the net, it's like, oh, $10,000 there. Oh, $20,000 there. And it really adds up. Right. That's why it's, uh, it's so important, you know, to gather information and learn experiences because, you know, when you make it, you make it. Like you, you, you can go to a house, you can spot it, and you can, like, look at the pitfalls. But you have to go through some errors in your life to, to get what you are now. Well, sure. I mean, so all of these experiences, it's, we learned it because someone along the line lost money, whether it was us or a borrower, right? It's things that we learned. And, you know, it's, I think that's the benefit of, of having seen so many transactions is there's just little things that you walk through. The, you know, I mentioned the electrical meter. So this is something that like in, in your inspections, you should always look at the electrical meter. Yes. Okay. So what you're looking for is the location of the electrical meter. Um, the, what's called the drop, which is, you know, the line that comes from the pole that hits the house. And you're looking for basically how far it drops down. So the power is usually the highest line, right? So if it's at the same line as like, let's say the cable lines or the telephone lines or whatever, um, somebody's moved that meter, right? Because that's not to code. They wouldn't, they wouldn't allow that. The other thing that you're looking for is there's clamps that they use, at least here locally, it's, I think it's, this is pretty much nationwide. It's, 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 um, there's these like black little clamps that they use to connect the, the, the hot wire to the pole wire. And, um, in illegal ones, what they do is they put the two wires together and then they start wrapping electrical tape to hold them together. And then once they've got them together, then they clamp them from the outside or they, maybe some, most of them don't even do that. But the reason they do that is because it's not the electric company that connected it. And so they didn't turn off the power at the pole, right? And, um, and so they have to work with hot wires. It, number one, it's super dangerous, like really dangerous, right? But those, that's every single house that I inspect, I look at that. So this mm. one that I mentioned just recently that they missed, that's what it had. It was taped. And, you know, and so that means that the location might be wrong, means that the job might not be to code. And if they have additions, it means that those additions might not be legal. So taped, taped hot wire together. That's that's a that's a instant red flag to go pull the permit history. Got you. Versus clamps. Yeah, versus the clamps. Versus the clamps. Yeah. Okay. What else? What other pitfalls? This is great. What other pitfalls? Oh, um, framing maybe. So framing. Issues. So if you're walking around and you see the roof line change, right? Or it's like it's maybe it's it's the original had a pitch. And then you see the pitch continued longer than like what's normal. And then maybe you're in the room and the ceiling's no longer eight feet. Now it's dropping down to like seven and a half feet, stuff like that. It would be indicative that that might not be legal. You know, if you look at the framing and let's say you're looking at the roof rafters and, you know, instead of being spaced apart, 
they're 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 sporadic, right? So you might have a 14 inch and then an 18 inch and then a 20 inch, and you know that's somebody who's just putting boards together. So um, also cracks are indicative. <clears throat> I've, yeah. I've, I've worked in a lot of properties, and you can tell that the the additions are have been illegal because they haven't been done well, and a lot of the times they do crack. Right. So cracks, um, you know, we live in earthquake land here in California, right. right? So here I, I'm, I'm accustomed to, like, cracks don't really bother me as much except for you're trying to figure out what the reason of the crack is. So, so what I learned during the earthquake, like after the, the, the Northridge earthquake, uh, was how to read cracks. And um, I had you know, an engineer that it was explained to me. He's like, look, he, he said, I don't really care about the horizontal and the vertical cracks. It's the, di- the diagonal cracks that mean something. That means that there was a stress failure somewhere. And that means that there was two plates that kind of moved and it created that, that vertical or that, uh, um, that diagonal cut. So I always, I've always looked at that. I mean, it's a small, a small minor one by a door, not a huge issue. But when it's a big one and there's a gap, something happened there, right? You get cracks that are that that where you see that locally. I mean, it's not usually the earthquakes that cause like a major damage. Um, it's not usually like a slide. It's usually what happens is that there's a drainage issue. Is probably the most common thing. You know, that didn't have rain gutters, um, sprinkler going off. Uh, you know, a leak. You know, stuff like that. And then the weight of the house over time, it just kind of compresses, and then mm. you have a little failure. Mm. And then what do you think about foundation when you actually, you know, you're inspecting the house or you're, you know, you made an offer and or you actually you're in escrow and then you get your inspector and then you get your report and you see cracks in the foundation. It's an old house, right? 19, 20, 30, 40. Is that really bad? It's not. Well, I mean, look, you, you never really want cracks, right? I mean, but the reality is that concrete cracks. Right. It's just concrete. That's just something that happens if it's poured in a day that's too hot, it's going to crack. If it's poured in a day that's too cold, it, it's not going to be have its structural integrity in place. And so you, you never really know what happened from that standpoint. But, you know, from a foundation standpoint, as long as you know that you don't have a core, let's say, soils issue, you know, foundations aren't super. I mean, it's, it's, it's concrete, rebar, cement and a hole. So it's, it's not um, super expensive. It can be if you don't know the right people, right? Because that's their profit margin. But uh, I, I don't worry about that because the cost is, is limited as long as you're accounting for it, right? So if you see certain things, there's ways to fix it, right? Just make sure that that's a line item in your bid so that you can address it. So when you see those things, you have to address them through your remodel because if you see them, your buyers are going to see them, mm. right? And so you, you want to make sure that, that they're getting addressed properly so that you don't, you know, I mean, if, listen, if you're selling a remodeled house, sell a remodeled house, make it worthwhile, make, you know, have, have that be the value of the house. Don't like put lipstick on a pig and try to sell that, you know, it's, so it's, 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 um, that's always been my philosophy. I mean, it's just, you know, we'd rather, and, and for us, like if something goes wrong afterwards, we try to, you know, come in and fix it if it's something that the warranty company is not covering or something along those lines. Got it. Got it. Okay. <clears throat> and um, I was talking to you a little bit ago, and you were you were mentioning right before we started that you've done you know tens of you know over ten thousand transactions, mm-hmm. either your own flips or lender or working right. JVs, and you have a you've done hundreds of flips. Right. Um, you know, overall, I, I know you gather a lot of information, a lot of knowledge. What's been your experience in what, you know, I'm sure you have properties where you make a lot of money. There's been some properties you actually 
broke even or lost money. Um, you know, what would you say in Los Angeles is the average? Um, and you know, it's it's hard to to put a number, but are you, are you seeing uh, the the remodeling market as a profitable market? Uh, the flipping market? Flipping. Yeah, the flip. Um, sure. I mean, you know, so I, I get this a lot. And the question is, well, when do you think flipping is going to be over? You know, it seems like it's it's hard to find properties. And, and um, the answer for me has been, I mean, like probably never, right? Because it's, it's it, I've been doing it for 30 years now. And there has been always flips. The type of flip changes, right? It changes from a straight fixer to adding square footage to you know, converting a house or tearing it down and building a duplex or a fourplex or building multifamilies or, you know, back to just straight fixers or oftentimes just helping other people, you know, flip their own places. So it, it's, it's, there's plenty of, uh, of, of, uh, um, of opportunity out there for sure. There, there's, there's, I, I don't think there's any shortage because especially now when you have, if you look at the demographics, right, the demographics right now is the millennials are coming in, they're buying, the older de- millennials are now, you know, mid to late thirties, um, you know, 37, I think is the oldest millennial that is con- considered a millennial mm-hmm. right now, but that's the, they're entering the, the, um, the home market and they have certain attributes of homes that they would like. Whereas the ones that are exiting now, you know, for sure are the silent generation and now the baby boomers have started to exit as well. And, you know, there's a disconnect there between the expectation of a millennial versus what they have. So there's a remodeling market and a flipping market there. There's also the fact that, you know, a lot of the um, silent generations or the people that are inheriting those properties, they're not necessarily in the flipping business. They're not going to fully remodel a house. And so there's an opportunity there for people to make money because they just want to get out. Um, you know, and so just it, it's there, there's going to be a need one way or the other. You know, it, it doesn't have to be the REO market. And the reason it got so big in, you know, 2008, 2009, all the way up to the 2015, is that you had this large still combination of short sales, REOs. You know, you had all the hedge funds that kind of entered the marketplace. Um, there was other opportunities for rent to own because the price points were so low. Uh, you know, but that's 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 a unique kind of, you know, we probably won't see that in our lifetime again. And, you know, it, but before that, there was plenty of flipping that had already been happening. And it was happening on a regular basis. And, it's the same thing. I mean, one one thing that I think people should be cognizant of is that when they're looking at opportunities is to get really involved and understand the marketplace. It's not just about the numbers, right? Some of the better deals are going to happen when you're buying a property in an, in, in an area that's changing, that the city is investing into the commercial in the area, that they're investing into the infrastructure, they're remodeling the streets, they're doing things to try to attract more business. You know, that that neighborhood is also going to come up a little bit. There's also things like, I mean, you look at Hollywood. Hollywood just went through this ma- massive change. And I grew up in Hollywood. You know, I, I grew up in Hollywood. I, I was driving down Sunset Boulevard. I didn't recognize the street that I would have turned off to my old place. And, you know, because it's, it, it just changed. And one of the things that changed was the zoning. So they changed the zoning. They upzoned it. So now that you can allow high rises more so, whereas before they were capped at three stories, you know, all of that land that was there that now they can build a lot higher on that went increased in value. You know, they, they did the, uh, um, the uh, subway system. So, uh, you know, if you, if you were near the subway systems, you know, they upzoned a lot of that area to make it attractive and create higher density so people could walk the subways to feed into, the, into public transit. So, you know, if you're aware of like, hey, th- this is a change that's coming down the line 
And whether you're flipping or not, this is even more so for if you're not flipping, if you're just buying a rental, if you're going to buy a rental somewhere, buy it in an area that has the possibility for faster accelerated values, right? Because of zoning, right? Because then all of a sudden you're buying these rentals that you're going to buy anywhere instead of buying it somewhere that doesn't have that, that rapid, you know, acceleration. If you buy it somewhere where you know they're going to change the zoning because they're going to put, you know, a subway here, then, okay, they're going to upzone the area. Fantastic. That's, that's, you, you make more money for doing exactly nothing more. Wow. Wow. So great information. Um, and, you know, talking a little bit about, about uh, buy and hold, um, what are your thoughts? Buy and hold, fix and flip, both, why? So, um, you know, this goes into the regrets category. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we were flipping apart buildings back in the 90s. And uh, I was 24, 27, I don't know how, whatever. And um, we were buying these apartment buildings to hold them. And then we got, you know, we were lazy because at the time I was living on the beach in Newport and, you know, you're sitting there and you think you're making money and it's fantastic. And, oh man, I got to go to Long Beach to deal with the tenant. Pain in the ass, Right. Until I figured out that, okay, I had a client in, what was that? That's probably 2014, came back to me on a building that I owned in the 90s. I bought it for 225. It was 16 units, all two bedrooms in Long Beach, right? Wow. And that was the bottom of the market for apartment buildings. And I uh, fixed it up, put tenants in it, flipped it for 680. So it was a good deal. I mean, it was a good deal for us. And, um, this guy came to us and said, I got a home run on a deal. He goes, no, I'm, I'm getting this 16-unit building for a million eight. And I just about, and I'm like, I, I can't lend you money on that. And he's like, why? He goes, I'm like, you know what? It's probably a good deal. I said, I just, out of principle, I just can't do it. <laughs> it's just, you know, and it's just, it was, uh, um, but, you know, you, you look at the valuations and it was just, I sh we should have kept this. It was cash flowing already. And it was just, you know, part of it was, okay, w you know, we made a lot of money and, um when you're young, you know, that, that lump sum meant more. And, but you know, the lump sum later would have meant a lot more. Mm. So I think, I think that now, you know, if you're doing it, you should have a combination play for sure, mm. you know, and, and really with the way things have changed, um, you should probably have a good planner, um, from a, a state planning and tax planning on your team as well. That's something that I think a lot of people don't talk about that I think is, is super important to, to not necessarily give it all away. Um, there's a lot of different formats and it's different for almost every person. So it's, it's, uh, um, I, I think that's an important team member to add, you know, to, absolutely. Absolutely. So I would say a combination, you should buy and hold some things, you should flip others. You know, I, I love flipping. I mean, I just, I like the lump sums. It's just, you know, it's good. And, and, you know, certain things that you, you, uh, um, the problem with holding longer term is that, you know, it is work product. That's work product that detracts you from making the bigger lump sums. So that's right. You park the money and, you know, it's, it's, it's more secure if the, if the neighborhood is good, but then, you know, you're, you, 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 you you're parking the money in one place versus being able to jump from one property to the you other. Know, some of my best cash flowing properties were in neighborhoods that were not good at all. Mm. In fact, in fact, the best cash flowing property that I had was the one I was most nervous about. And and it was it was a kind of semi I want to say gang infested building that that you know we we happened to do something for the building 
And everyone respected that. And everyone then from that day forward paid on time when they could pay on time. Wow. And it was, I was shocked. It was, I was like, wow, that was just, it was a lesson for me. I'm like, all right, cool. Wow. Um, next question for you. Um, what was the year that you made the most flips? How many did you do? And in your career, which was your best flip? Oh, wow. Um, so I think the year that we probably did the most flips, this was as a company um, back then. So we had, you know, we had, we had a lot of staff, but I think we did just under 500 flips. Wow. You know, and that was, uh, um, what was that, 2000, it was either 10 or 11. And I think it was 10. And, um, you know, I mean, a lot of it was, they were very quick flips, you know, because we'd buy it and then just immediately resell it. Others were, we'd fix up and then fully resell. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of people didn't know that we were flipping because that wasn't even the core business. The core business really back then was was still lending. And uh, but we were also the source for a lot of the transactions that came. So, um, you know, I don't know that you could replicate that today because I mean that was you know you had a high, high REO inventory, so you could buy both you know on market, off market, trustee sale. Um, I think it'd be difficult to replicate that in one market now. Uh, I, I think that the, the companies that are doing you know uh, that type of volume now you know are usually in multiple counties, if not multiple states, uh, to to get the volume up high enough. Wow. And how do you even manage 500 deals in one year? A lot of process, a lot of good people, you know, um, uh, but process for sure. And you have to have good enough people that you're not involved, that you're just overseeing. And uh, I mean, here's the important part is that you have to allow for mistakes, right? Mm. So there has to be a contingency in all of the deals that you're doing for a for a mistake, for mm. when you do buy a bad property and you lose money. And, 10%, 15%, whatever that is. Well, I mean, of, of your net profit, um, yeah. I mean, hopefully not more than ten percent. I, I think if you're doing, if you're reserving that, I think you should be okay. But I think that you have to have the staff that has your best interest at heart. I mean, keep in mind, there's so many ways to get robbed in this business, right? Whether it's robbed of time or robbed of money or whatever it is, or robbed of opportunity. You know, you do have to have the people that have, you know, that, that have your best interest at heart, and so especially when you're dealing with construction, you know, it's very easy for people to try to take advantage of you from a construction standpoint. I mean, that's such a key part. I mean, look, it's very difficult to find this deal. You get this deal already. And if you have the wrong team in place, your construction can go out of, you know, easily a $50,000 rehab can turn into a hundred thousand dollars, you know, very, very easily. And um, if you don't know how to handle that or how to have the contracts right with your contractors and how to, you know, make sure that the it's not all one-sided so you can protect yourself and and also read the person that you're working with. I mean, you can have an issue. Well, yeah, so many pitfalls, especially with, uh, you know, contractors is such a big, I think we all have uh, experiences, uh, good and bad with contractors. Um, got it. All right. Um, any, um, let's see, I was, I kind of forgot my line of thought. Um what else do you want to talk about? Well, let's see here. Um, I, I would say if you're, you know, marketplace, I mean, I think analyzing the marketplace is an important thing. You know, a lot of people that don't necessarily listen to the people that are, are, um, are selling you something, right? If you're, if you're, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I'm going to call them, let's just say bearish people out there who make a lot of money off scaring you 
into buying, you know, their stocks, you know, or they're they're selling gold or whatever it is because the market's going to crash. You know, they're, they're, you have to be cognizant of what someone's incentive is, right? It's okay to make money. There's no problem there, right? It's okay to sell information and knowledge or whatever it is, but you have to look at everything and say, okay, here's the overall, like right now, you know, in the marketplace, there's so many people that are saying, oh, the, the market's going to crash. It's overinflated. Right. If you just look at the raw numbers, it just doesn't show that. The demographics don't show that. And so the you have the the one side that's trying to say, hey, the world is falling. We're coming up on an election, so we're going to hear a lot more about, mm. you know, if you vote for this person, the world's going to end. If you vote for this other person, the world's going to end. No matter what happens, they keep saying the world's going to end. Right? <laughs> and so, but it never ends. And so it's 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 um, the reality is that I think that you know you just have to look at the numbers, just look at the data, follow people who are much smarter than yourself that are just giving you the data, you know, in an unbiased manner, where it's like, look, this is what it is. This is what it means. That's it. Mm. Not non. Don't worry about the, you know, geopolitical issues that are coming on. You know, it, don't don't look at the, the you know the people that are incentivized to sell you this seminar and the next hottest stock thing because mm. it, the market's going to crash, and this thing and you know you don't want to have missed out on, you know, if you would have bought Google at twenty three cents, you know, mm. I mean, you couldn't none. Forget about that. But That's there's right. plenty of people that want to scare you into giving you their money or giving them your money. Mm. And so, um, you know, pay less attention to those, you know, uh, pay more attention to the people that are just have, you know, there's plenty of people out there that give great information with no seminar, no nothing, no whatever. They're just information. That's right. And then, uh, you know, track their records. There's a lot of people who, like, there's a lot of really well-known guys uh, that are on the radio make these fantastic predictions when they don't happen, they delete that prediction, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and then come out with a new prediction. And here's, oh, it didn't happen because of this. No, it didn't happen because you didn't read the stuff right, you know, or you were incentivized to do whatever. So it's, it's I think that there's a few people that, that, that are worth listening to and then others that, you know, have not. And those people are, are, are more often than not, right? Um, they're not all, nobody is right all the time. Right. And that's, that's, that's the whole thing. If everybody was right or someone was right all the time, nobody else would listen to anybody else. Right. So just understand that and then just go from that standpoint and try to make your best decision. You can all, we always, we used to say this, look, you can only make the best decision with the best information you have at hand. If you're dealing with false information, every decision you make after that is a faulty decision. So you can only do the best that you can and try to surround yourself by people that have a level head that aren't overly excited, that are just, this is what it is. This is what good mm. or bad. This is this. This is it. <clears throat> so many gold nuggets. Um, I want to make sure that we can. Um, that we, uh, I'm going to repeat some things so our students can really grasp some of these incredible things. Uh, today we talked about Robert talked about um, you know, pitfalls. Um, pitfalls that you can fall into when buying a property. Um, you know, we talked about uh, things that you can actually spot while you're visiting a property that you might purchase. Um, you know, we went through his experience in real estate. Um, um, the importance of surrounding yourself with great people, um, people that will elevate your game. He also talked about education, the importance of education, getting a coach, um, 
Robert, what other gold nuggets that I'm missing right now? I want, I want our students to really uh, hear, hear this two or three times. You know, if I, I, I'll say that, uh, well, this is, we didn't talk about this, but this is a different one, is um, if they can follow someone who's doing it, right? Or if mentor. they have a mentor, um, even walk live projects and ask questions and see different changes. You know, there, there's things that I see, like people post on Facebook, and I don't really, you know, I, I don't comment on some things because, you know, maybe it's a clear mistake that they shouldn't have done in either the layout of a kitchen you know, um, I see people all the time, they, they forget to put a dishwasher in, um, things that buyers are looking for, or they put the refrigerator right up against the wall. You know, this sounds like it's not a big deal, right? It is. Except when your buyer goes there and they put their refrigerator and they try to open the door and it can't swing. And if it doesn't swing, you can't open the drawer that's inside the refrigerator. That's kind of a big negative, right? And so, you know, there's certain things that, like, you should just you're not going to pick up on because you, you just, you're not going to know without the experience of someone who's already made that mistake. I made that mistake once. I figured that out, got the fridge in there. I was like, crap, never did it again because I made that mistake once and it, and it pissed me off that I missed it. You know, I mean, there's, there's just things that you're going to learn over time, you know, that are going to cost you money along the way. And, um, and so, you know, if you just look at, this is the benefit of the mentorship route, right? Is if you have people who are mentors for you, whoever they are, that have more experience, is that whatever you're paying them, really, at the end of the day, you're probably saving at some point throughout the project, you know, from all these little things that mean something. And so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. You know, it's okay to partner with somebody on a deal. You know, you think you're giving away all the money. You could do everything yourself. And, and you know what? And maybe you can. And, and, but the reality is that you can until something goes wrong. And when that something goes wrong, oftentimes it's too late. And so... Um, I, I'm not saying this to scare somebody or anything like that. I'm just saying that, you know, cover your bases as much up front if you're going to do if you're going to do it yourself, right? And you've never done a deal, just make sure that, like, you're going through. Get people involved before you do it yourself to tell you other things. And when they're telling you something, and sometimes it's don't do this deal, you might have to listen. You know, a lot, of, especially with newbies, the problem is that, you know, sometimes they're looking at these transactions and they want this deal to happen so much. Right, and they're frustrated because they've been looking for six months for a deal, and they finally came across this deal that looks like it's a deal. And so, you know, if it's an on-market deal, I'll say this: if the pros all pass on it, you got to really look dig in mm. to figure out why why you're getting the deal now. Mm. Right? You have people who have call rooms and call centers and relationships already, and you're getting this deal. You're either the luckiest person on the, or you might be missing something, mm. or maybe your profit margin is less than theirs is. That's okay too, right? But you have to understand that that you know, try to figure out what you're missing. Like I, I go into a deal not necessarily trying to kill the deal, but trying to just figure out all of the nuances of the pr particular transaction. And sometimes that kills the deal more often than not. And sometimes if the market's getting better, I lose out on deals that I would have done. Right? That's okay. Right, because you have to protect against the downside as well, and so you'd rather go into a deal knowing that you're going to make money, versus going into the deal thinking you're going to make a little money and then end up losing money. So, yeah, yeah so powerful. I, you mentioned this a little bit ago. You said that the sometimes the best deal is the deal that you walk away from. That's right. Wow. All right. Well. Um, is there anything else you want to share before we uh, wrap it up? I mean, so much, so many more questions, but so much uh, uh, value you've added so far. 
I don't think I told you about my, my worst deal. Okay, so let's do this. I want to hear about your worst deal and your best deal, and then we'll wrap it up. All right, so um, I, I think the best deal that I ever did, um, I'm trying to think of that. Or the top, top best. Well, I mean, I, I, I will say some of the top deals that we've done. How much you bought it for, how much you put, how much Yeah, you that's sold. what I'm trying to remember the numbers. I don't, I hate to give inaccurate like numbers, but uh, I, I, I will say this. There's a lot of transactions that we did that um, that we did in an up market. We knew the market was uptrending and we started just buying and many of those deals turned out better. Um, I will say also that when the market was really heated, um, we figured this out through some of our borrowers that were slower, like we were really efficient and uh, we were flipping some of these houses and we were getting in and out of them in three, four months. And our clients that were taking six and seven months were making significantly more money than we were on the same buys. And we're like, oh, we need to slow down. We're missing out on the appreciation because the market was appreciating above what your debt service was. And we're like, well, we're doing all this extra work to do these extra deals when we could just wait, right? Relax, so, yeah. And then, wait a little bit. And we, so that was kind of a smart decision for us. It's not a, it's not a decision I would recommend for most people. And it's, it's, a, it's a very unique time period when, um, when you can get away with that. Worst deal... Um, uh, you know, I, I did a, uh, so my, <laughs> actually this is my worst deal. It was a personal house. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'd moved to Dallas for a little bit and I, I bought an old church and converted it to my house. So wow. I, so I went in thinking, and if you go on my Facebook, you'll see the pictures of it. It was kind of a cool place. Um, but it was, um, it was, it was interesting in that, uh, you know, I went in thinking one thing and then my wife said, oh no, no, let's restore it. And I didn't realize how much more the cost of restoring versus just what I was going to do to it. Yeah, that was the worst deal. So we lost, I don't know, I'm going to say probably a million dollars on that deal. Wow. 800000 or something like that. So moral of the story is, you know, again, go in with the don't plan. Don't buy churches. Don't buy churches. <laughs> no, there's still, I mean, you know what? I, I love that. It was a great place. But, you know, the, the moral of the story is really, if you have a plan that you go in with, stick with the plan. Stick with the plan. Right? And so we changed the plan mid Midway, and it just changed everything off, and it was, it was it turned out to be a terrible deal. <laughs> and then, and then, in regards to the the best flip you've ever done, uh, was it like on you made like a hundred thousand dollar profit? You made a three hundred thousand dollar profit? I know you don't remember all the exact na- numbers, but no, I, I I think that we've we've probably probably some of the better deals we made over half a million dollars on. Wow, on a flip, on a flip, yeah. not even ground up construction, not even ground, no, yeah, not ground up over. Uh, Five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, but they were higher end houses. You know, so the risk is higher too. R- risk is higher, but you know, again, market timing. Mm. You know, I mean, it's it's so it's 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 there's certain things when you're if you're in the know or or at least surrounded by people that have better knowledge than you. You know, um, and they're looking at you know uh, price per square foot. Like there was a time in L.A. where L.A. was just so undervalued because if you looked at the price per square foot and let's say you know, Hong Kong and New York and, and uh, uh, Singapore, you know, and you look at all these other markets and then you look at the weather in Southern California as being great and we have the movie industry and all this draw and then you have that, you know, all these CEOs can now basically telecommute because of the internet and the speeds of the internet changed so much and flight no longer, you know, took as long as it took and you can fly around the world and essentially, you know, just 12, 15 hours it made LA much more attractive and really undervalued. And so, you know, when when the when the when you look at the West Side or the Bird Streets and they were selling for, you know, six hundred fifty to eight hundred dollars a square foot and they should be at twelve hundred dollars a square foot, 
you know, it's, you see an opportunity there. And so um, that, that's, that's probably the, those are probably the better deals. I mm. and, and, and so we can leave our, our students with, some, <clears throat> with a golden nugget on taking action. What would you say uh, in regards of a location in California, uh, more, more, more particularly in Los Angeles or around Los Angeles, will be a good location for an upcoming neighborhood for a, for a new investor? Well, you know, I, I'll say this. I, I like the Southern California marketplace. I think that there's a lot of nuggets in, in, in the neighborhoods that are in the areas. <clears throat> But um, if you're looking at one particular spot, you know, I mean, there's uh, the areas surrounding Hollywood, North Hollywood. Um, there, there's that, That's a good market. If you go closer to Orange County, there's plenty of Orange County areas that are good now as well. Um The benefit of some of the Hollywood and North Hollywood is a zoning, so you can create add-on square footage and things like that and create value through that. So you're, you're not having to buy this deep, deep, deep discounted property anymore. You can just add value to the construction if you have a good team. Um, those are opportunities. Now, if you're a newbie, you know, I don't necessarily recommend getting involved with a new construction or an add-on because that's, it's, it's too easy to lose money that way. Mm -hmm. um, but from a straight fixer standpoint, there's a lot of like the – I'm going to say blue to white collar neighborhoods that are up and coming are great. Some of the areas that, you know, used to be South Central that are now, you know, getting trendy. Stadium being built, that, that will add a huge value. <clears throat> yeah. Well, she, you know, I, so I just, I don't, I don't know about that, right? Like I, I, because they said the same thing about, like the example for this is what happened around the Staples Center, you know, but the Staples Center didn't bring in the value to all like the neighborhood. If you look at it, it was the city, they were already re, like, re, they, there was, there was adaptive reuse that happened first. You had all these people that converted these lofts. You have all these other homes that came in. This was before the Staples Center was even built. So it wasn't really Staples Center that brought all this business. I think the litmus test for, um, for the stadium that they're building right now in Inglewood is, will people go to that stadium after there's no games on a weekend? Will that become a destination? If it's a destination because of the entertainment center that's there for people to want to commute, And then go there, then you'll start to see those changes because you know, you'll first see changes in commercial and then the neighborhoods and everything else. But if people are just going there for the games or for the events that are there and they go in and then they leave, then I don't think that's really going to do anything because at one point, you know, they built the forum there, right? Said the same thing about the forum. It's going to change everything. And it didn't. And so I, I don't, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not sold on the, on the uh, aspect of, hey, it's, everything's going to get better because we're building a stadium. I just don't think that's how. It actually works. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, Robert, thank you so much. We're, we're very happy that you came. Um, you know, um, we appreciate everything you said. You, you're bringing a huge value to all our community. Um, thank you so much for being here. And uh, yeah, I, you know, anything else you want to say? No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Good luck. And, uh, you know, as always, you know where to find me. Absolutely. <laughs> Alrighty. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.